Good morning, church. It seems to me that either um, our uh, congregation has been decimated by illness or you all blew away <laughs> yesterday. My goodness. In fact, there was one point that I could, I, I, I swore that if I tied a rope to my eight-year-old, I'd be able to fly her like a kite. My gracious, it was blowing yesterday. Uh, I'm glad that you're here. Um, so we're in this series called Storyline, and just try to remind us that we're, we're, we're tracing the arc of Scripture. And that's a really fancy way of saying is that we're trying to understand the, the storyline that this library of books, remember the, the Bible in my view is this library or an anthology of books written by different authors at different times to um, different audiences, but they all tell one story. And we're trying to understand what that story is because I think what happens is that we lose sight of that. And sometimes when we lose sight of the big picture, it's really easy to end up in places that we don't really need to be. And, and frankly, I think it takes our, our mind off of the mission that, that God has in mind for us. So, consequently, um, we've been looking at this arc of Scripture through, you know, basically four segments. Uh, we have creation, we have fall, we have redemption, and we have resolution. <clears throat> And these are important factors um, to think about as far as the storyline goes. And I, and I know full well that some authors will break this into you know, six parts or seven parts or ten parts or whatever. I like four because I like, I like something a little more simple so I can remember it. Um, that's just me. If you want to add more sections, you're more than welcome to do that. But these are the four that we're kind of going after. And we started a couple weeks ago looking at the creation story, and in Genesis chapter 1, we get this perfect picture of the way life should be. And, and there's some language that's used there where right at the end, it, it really is a picture of a king enthroned over a peaceable kingdom. And then we get some details about it in, in Genesis chapter 2, but in Genesis chapter 1, that's the image that God wants us to have in mind, that the, the whole intent, the whole project was about a king who's enthroned over a peaceable kingdom. The problem is, it's not peaceful anymore, is it? And we know this just by the way we live our lives and what we've experienced or what we continue to experience, what we read, what we see on, on the news, things that you know, people are talking about, about around us. Something happened somewhere along the line that changed this picture of a peaceful kingdom. And what we discovered in Genesis chapter 3, this was just last week, when we talked about the fall of, of human beings, that ultimately there's a series of relationships that were broken. And the, the, the easiest one to understand is the relationship between God and human beings because the human beings chose against God. They, they did something they weren't supposed to. And so you've got that broken relationship. And, and the text says that when they, when they made that decision, they realized that they were naked and they hid. And that's an important thing because it shows a broken relationship inside because now they understood shame for the first time. And toxic shame destroys people every single day. And then, of course, when they're confronted by, by God in the garden, first thing that Adam does is he throws his wife under the bus. And 
that's a relationship that's broken between human beings. So not only is the one between God and human beings, and the human being and the self, and the relationship between each other is now broken too. And then, then we find out that up until that point, there was always enough for Adam and his family. And now there would be strife, there would be difficulty between, between human beings and all of the created order. This is why we have weeds in the garden. Well, the point is, is that we, we see this evidence of broken relationship over and over. And the question that we have to ask ourselves, is that the end? Is, is that the end? Because remember, remember that God spoke order into chaos and darkness, and now it seems like chaos and darkness have entered the world one more time. And so is God going to allow us to stay in chaos and darkness? Well, I don't think so. I think that there's, there's some important things to remember. First is that God is good, right? We believe that. Um, he is committed to his creation because, well, he created it. And he's not content to leave it in a mess. And so he started this plan that we call redemption. That's the third box. And actually, I, I, I kind of wish that I would have used different language because I think redemption is one of those $5 theological words, and I'd rather say something like rescue. Because here we are in darkness and chaos, and I think that God has started a rescue operation that is absolutely massive. And I know it's massive because we're only in the third chapter of Genesis, and there's an entire library of books to go through yet. Make sense? Yeah. So I really think that there's a... You did it. <laughs> Sherry's going to read the scripture to us. So, Oh, that's going to come up in small group next week. So <laughs> I'm, just kidding. I'm just kidding. Where was I? Oh, yes. Okay. We were talking about the rest of the Bible. Now, here's the thing that, that I want to do, because I want to talk about this rescue operation, but I want to do it in a very specific way, because um, that's a lot of ground to cover, obviously. And so I want you to think kind of um, about a skipping stone. My grandfather taught me how to skip rocks across lakes. And you got to find a nice smooth stone, and you got to get just the right motion, and you got to get your hip into it. And he explained this all, all to me, and I remember learning that from my grandfather. It's one of those very vivid memories. Well, it's kind of like that. What I want to do is that treat the Bible like the lake, and our topic, this idea of rescue, is what we're going to be skipping across this lake. And so what we're going to do is we're going to touch certain parts of the text so that we get an idea that there's some movement that's going on. Is this making sense? Because otherwise we're going to be here a long time, and I don't know about you, but I still want to eat lunch. And I think, I think it's, it, it's uh, important enough that we, we understand what's happening here, but I don't think we have to have the full counsel of God one day, because the mind can absorb only what the seat can endure. So let's keep that in mind. And, and 
This rescue operation begins with one man and his family. And we're going to be talking first about Abraham. Now, my intention is not to be exhaustive here, okay? I'm just, I'm just picking and choosing to, to show the trajectory of the text. And so we're going to start with, with Abraham. And to do that, and um, look, if you've got a Bible with you, this is great because we're going to be all over the place today. But <clears throat> we're going to start in Genesis chapter 12. Here it is, verses 1 through 3. The Lord had said to Abram, who later becomes Abraham, right? Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Okay, now how many of you want to make a trip where you don't know what the destination is? I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is a promise that God is making to Abraham. You're going to be a great nation. I'm going to bless you, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And by the way, the word that's used here is families. All families will be blessed through you. Now, please understand that in that day and age, the world was uh, constructed by family. It was who you were related to. So you have things like families, and you have, you have clans, and you have tribes, and you have all of these types of organi- organ- uh, organization for human beings. Birds, flock, fish, school, people, tribe, right? So right here, it's families. So all families will be blessed by you. It's an important uh, distinction to make. And so God creates this covenant with, uh, with Abram. And we find that in, actually in, in Genesis chapter 15. We actually covered that a few weeks ago. We, we had talked about it a little bit. But he, he, he says, okay, I'm going to make this promise, but I'm going to go one step further. I'm going to make a legal um, agreement with you. We call that a covenant. And there's some very specific um, steps that, uh, that they had to take in order to formalize this thing. But God makes this promise, and then he creates a covenant. And then what's so interesting is that later on, he uh, confirms or affirms that same covenant with, with his son, Isaac. Abraham's son, Isaac, receives the same covenant. You can find that in Genesis uh, 26 if you're interested. And if that weren't enough... He goes so far as to affirm the same covenant with his grandson, Jacob, which is in Genesis chapter 28. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, if you went into a Jewish synagogue today, you may well hear the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is where it comes from, is that God had created a covenant um, with Abraham and then confirmed it with his descendants. Is this making sense? Okay? The whole idea is, I'm going to bless you, and then I'm going to bless people through you. So that's the start of this rescue operation. Now, if you know anything about history, especially um, biblical history, you know that Jacob had a bunch of sons, 12 to be exact. And uh, yes, you have 12 sons of of Jacob. Uh, Can you imagine that grocery bill, right? Goodness. Fortunately, Jacob was quite wealthy, and uh, he was able to feed all of them. And through a series of, of circumstances, they ended up, the entire 
family of families, in this case, moved, migrated down to Egypt. So imagine a map of the Mediterranean world, and you kind of know where Israel is, and they migrated south to Egypt. And at that time, um, Egypt was the breadbasket of the world. Why? Because of the Nile River. And they had figured out irrigation, and so they could grow food. And so if you had famine somewhere else in the land, you went to Egypt, because you know that they had some food there. It's important um, to remember that. So they migrated there. And so you've got these 12 sons, and they all have wives, and then they had big families, because it was a big deal to have big families then. And then those families had families, and those families had families. And so this population of people from, from what we call Israel today, but in that day and age was Canaan, became not just a large family or a large family of families or even a tribe, but multiple tribes, and they were almost what you would call a nation. An entire race of people, a nation of people who are living in Egypt. And they grew so much and had so much influence that the Egyptians were afraid of them. Now, there's some historical reasons for that, but for our purposes, Egypt grew afraid. And so what did they do? They enslaved the entire population. The entire population. Now, you've got to ask yourself the question, how is God going to bless the nations through a group of slaves? Right? It's, it's an interesting, interesting kind of thought. That, that here we have this, this very direct um, promise I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse you. We're enslaved. Where's the cursing? Where's the blessing? There's got to be some question marks at this point. Would you agree? So how is this all going to come to pass? Well, fortunately, enter um, Moses. And Moses goes in, and he... <clears throat> um, uh, I keep, for every time I mention Moses, I think of Charlton Heston. I'm sorry. I try not to. Let my people go. Anyway, I just I can't help it. And I don't understand why they play that every Easter, because it has nothing to do. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But <laughs> amazing I get anything done, right? Um, and enter Moses. And so God sends Moses to lead them out of captivity. And after this epic battle between Yahweh and Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's gods, as it were, Moses leads them out of captivity and brings them to Mount Sinai. Now remember Jacob? Remember Jacob? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and so that's the name that they adopt. He brings Israel, this nation of slaves, to Mount Sinai. Again, if you were to go into a synagogue today, you would probably hear something about the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Why? Because it's the seminal moment in the life of Israel. It's the thing that they, that they all go back to. Because God creates another covenant. This time, not with a particular family, but this nation called Israel. And he does it at Mount Sinai creates a covenant, cuts a covenant with them. And what he does is he gives them the Torah. Um, it's called the law, but really what it is, ultimately, 
it's a set of expectations on how they would live with Yahweh as their God and what they could expect Yahweh to do for them. It's, it's the legal aspect of this thing, the, the list of behaviors, the things that, that they were supposed to do and not do. And it's the Torah that defined them as a people because at Mount Sinai they said, yes, we will be your people. And they had that choice and they made it. And so he brings them back to the promised land that God gave to Abraham. So they go from Mount Sinai back up to what is modern-day Israel. So there's some migration, there's some movement here, but please understand, the promise that was made to Abraham was also made to, um, was also made to Israel. Here's where we find it in Exodus chapter 24. Moses got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. That's, that's the agreement. There's the covenant. Here's the book of the covenant. We read it. Yes, we're agreeing to it. Now we're in a covenant relationship. And from there they go on back to Israel. Now, they enter the promised land. And there's ups and downs. There's a lot of ups and downs. There's some really great ups and there are some really despicable lows to that entire story. But the nation grows, and they become an actual nation, and they have a king. So we're not talking about a nation as far as a race of people. Now we're talking about a, a political entity. There's a kingdom with a king, and there's armies, and there's warfare, and there's intrigue, and there's all sorts of things that you know, we would associate with, with that kind of a government. And later on, at the height of Israel's power, a man named David enters the storyline and he becomes king. And I want you to, to notice what happens here. God says through a prophet to David, when your days are over and, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. And he is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. What's the word? Forever. This is interesting. My love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed uh, from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, now wait a second. Wait a second. Yes, he's talking about succession. I understand that. And he's talking about, you know, grandsons and great-grandsons and whatnot. But forever is a really long time. Right? This, this is odd. And I will establish your kingdom forever. David is mortal, and all of his, his offspring are going to be mortal. And and David knows full well that there's an ebb and there's a flow to kings and kingdoms. It's been that way since time began, or at least time that was recorded. 
And so who, who would actually do that? Who would be the person that would, that would be on that throne forever? Well, you can imagine who that is. We call him Jesus. And, and I find it very fascinating that right in the first chapter of Luke, and we read about the angel of the Lord appearing before a girl named Mary, who in all likelihood was probably 13 or 14 years old. And the angel says, you know, you found favor with God, and you're going to have a baby, which has got to be shocking enough. But here's the interesting thing, is that if you go on, it says the angel said to her, he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, who? David, right? And he will reign over Jacob's descendants. Remember Jacob, grandson of Abraham? Forever, his kingdom will never end. Does this make sense? Now... We have the divine entering the picture in a very real way because Jesus is fully divine and fully human. So if there's anybody who can take the throne of his father, David, and sit on it forever, it is Jesus. Do you see where this is going? See how this is moving through the text? It's fascinating. Abraham to Sinai to David to Jesus there is this thread of covenants and promises that's woven throughout the Bible that brings humanity and God back together. It's redemption and restoration and rescue. And those things are forever on God's mind. Always. Those are the things that God is ultimately after. See, the history of Israel is anchored in covenant. The history of Israel is about these anchor points throughout their history where God has made an agreement with them. Now again, this is not exhaustive. We're just trying to show this movement that happens within history. But I want you to notice something. I want you to think about this with me for just a moment because it's really cool that we can kind of see this traced throughout the history of Israel and understand that there's covenants and, and whatnot. But the, the real question is, why? Why would that be the case? Why would God choose to interact with humanity who are notorious for screwing stuff up? Why would he do that? Well, in Eden, remember that God and humanity interacted with one another, one another face to face. There's this little um, notion in, I think it's in the end of Genesis 2 or beginning part of Genesis 3, where it talked about how God walked with, with Adam in the garden, walked with him, like, like physically right there, having a conversation, not like when you're driving down the road and you, you're, you're imagining Jesus in the passenger seat because he's your co-pilot kind of thing and having that, not like that, like no, like a real physical entity. God is walking with Adam and they're having those kinds of conversations. And you can imagine what that would be like is that, you know, here's Adam is like, hey, 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 I know that you created all this stuff, but hey, did you see this? You know, we, this flower is fabulous. Or, hey, we just tried this kind of vegetable because the first, um, 
The first humans were vegetarians. I hate to break that to you, but it is in the text, and you can find it there. And they're trying all kinds of different types of beans and different types of, of, of tubers and things that they're eating and, and salads and whatnot. I'm guessing that's what the case is. But he's showing that to God. And, of course, God knows all this, but God's enjoying this because he told him to cultivate it and care for it, and he is. And it's an exciting type of process. They're, they're interacting one with another. That's Eden. And then they make the decision and God has to banish him from that. And so Abraham comes on the scene and, and God calls him in an audible voice that he understands. And, and at least once, the text says that he appears to him. Sometimes it's called the angel of the Lord. But the divine shows up to Abraham, just little bits not the, the, the full-on relational day in, day out, but just little bits here and there. And there's these long stretches of time when, before, or when, when, when Abraham doesn't hear from God at all. And then all of a sudden, he'll, he'll come and there's, there's covenant, there's relationship, and there's promises that are made. And Abraham's wondering because he doesn't have any kids yet. But God shows up and God called him and he protected him, this Abraham. And then, then Israel. When Israel was at Mount Sinai, they, they, were, they were commanded to make a tent, a large tent. And, and they would know that God would come into that tent because it would be filled with smoke. And what's interesting is that when you read it, the tent was in the middle and all of the tribes, all the families of Israel were to be on the various sides because there's 12 tribes, four sides, there's three tribes on each side of this massive tent. And God would dwell with them as they moved throughout the countryside because he would come down into the tent of meeting and all of Israel would know that God was in, was in the tent because they could see the smoke. It's not the same thing as being with God day in and day out and having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with him, but at least in the middle of the camp, there was God. And he would lead them through that pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day that was God being with his people. And then we get to Jesus, whose name was also called, do you remember? Emmanuel which means God with us. Do you see a pattern here? There's this little pattern that's going on. God with us. And of course, when Jesus left, here's the cool thing. When Jesus left, he says, my peace I give to you. And he talked about a comforter. He talked about his Holy Spirit. And when he left, eventually the Holy Spirit came down. Now it's not God with us. It's God within us. The central story of covenant that goes throughout this entire book is really about God getting back together with humanity. To be spending time with human beings. It's all about the presence of God. The very presence of God and God with his people 
And, and it's no longer a family or a nation or a particular race, but it's all and every single person can be connected with him. In this church, we've, we've talked about this idea of making our theme for the year chasing after the presence of God. Chasing after the presence. Why? Because God's presence is chasing us. Always has been. And so I would just encourage you to find a way to get into the presence of God. And here's what I mean by that. That's a fancy way of saying just connect with Him somehow. Look, here, here's the thing. Sometimes you, you, you just send up the little arrow prayers. That's what my wife calls them. She calls them arrow prayers. Just, oh, God, help me. Oh, God, help me. <laughs> you know, kind of, how many of you have prayed that? You know, some, six times this morning helping the kids get ready to come to church, right? Yes, I understand. These short little arrow, arrow prayers. Um, and, that, and that's fine. And, and of course God wants us to go deeper, but look, you've got to start somewhere. So start wherever you are and trust the fact that God, the God who has been pursuing human beings since the fall of man, wants to connect with you. Just start there. And if you believe that, I believe that he's going to meet you right where you're at. I don't know where that is. He does, and he'll meet you there. Because the, the bottom line to all of this, the thing that we, we, we just believe with all our hearts is he wants to be with you. Not some perfect version of yourself that you imagine. Not some perfect version that, that you think that somebody else requires of you. You. Just you. He wants to be connected to you. So if you've got to start with arrow prayers, cool, start with arrow prayers. Nothing wrong with that. But at the end of the day, this movement throughout the text, this history of God and humanity is about God being with you.